Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Keith Bowes. He's the MD at Lotus Resources, an ASX-listed uranium junior assets in Malawi. We talked to him uh, about the uh, musical chairs, directors coming and going, and why uh, fundraised recently, what they're going to do with that, and what they think they've inherited from the Paladin deal, and more importantly, what's, what is the outlook in uh, 2021 for the company uh, and the macro. If you want our thoughts and opinions on those uh, topics discussed, the company itself, uh, in fact, their plans for this year, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Uh, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. It's truly fascinating insights uh, in there. We've got training courses to help you with your diligence process. We've got summaries of interviews that we've done just to save you some time because we know you're busy. And of course, more importantly, there's a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe and friendly environment, free from trolling, abuse and judgment. Um, and you should go and join them at truxinvestor.com com slash club. Keith, how are you doing, sir? Hi, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're good, good to have you on board. We've been uh, wanting to get you on board, hear the story. Relatively relatively new story in the uranium space. Um, so thanks very much for coming on. So where are you? So I'm based in Perth at the moment, but of course our project is over in Malawi in uh, Central Africa. Have you been able to get anywhere near it? Uh, I was fortunate then I was part of the original group that did the due diligence on the project. So I went across in late 2019, had an opportunity to spend a good couple of days on site, sticking my nose in everywhere, talking to everyone who was involved with it. But unfortunately, since then, uh, COVID restrictions have stopped any travel. So we've had to rely on our uh, crew or our site guys to be able to manage everything for us. Oh, well, at least you've seen it. So that's something. Um well, look, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the story with us. Given it's a new sort of, we've not spoken or met before, so um, th- there's that. But also, in probably a new story is a lot of uh, people getting into the uranium uh, thesis. So can you kick off, give us a one-minute overview of what it is that you are, and I'll pick it up from there with some questions. Yeah, sure. So we're Lotus Resources, and we acquired the Calicara uranium project off Paladin Energy last year. So Paladin, as you might know, had two assets. They had the Langer Heinrich asset in uh, Namibia and Calicara was their second asset that they had. Both of them were on care and maintenance and our group effectively made an offer to Paladin to take the Calicara um, asset off them. Uh, We completed that deal in March of last year um, and we've been keeping the asset on care and maintenance since then as well. So it's a uh, previous operating asset. It operated for five years between 2009 and 2014. Um, went into uh, care and maintenance at that point due to the slump in the uranium price. Paladin has kept it on care and maintenance and we've continued that activity as well with the intention of bringing it back online, of course, when the uranium price pops again. Right, thanks for that. We've seen quite a few new entrants into the uranium junior mining space. Um, I think people, some, some people, trying to maybe take advantage of the you know, recent interest in uranium and people's expectations of where uranium is going to go. I think, I think some, some have faltered because it's taken a little bit longer than any of us had hoped or thought. Um, yeah. So I just want to talk to, about your team, you know, because I say there, 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 there are some who have perhaps been in, come from other industries and uranium is very, spe- very specific, very technical uh, type of commodity, uh, type of business to run. So give us a bit of your background, for instance, and maybe some of your team too. 
Sure. So just starting with myself then. So I'm an engineer by background, a chemical engineer, but I've been in the mining industry effectively the whole of my career. Um, spent about 20 years with the majors, so BHP Billiton, Anglo-American and Vale as well, and moved into the junior space about seven years ago. I um, mean, in the junior space, that was where I got my real exposure to uranium. Um, six or seven years ago, I was part of the team that did the due diligence work on Uranium One's um, honeymoon asset, which uh, ended up in Boss Resources. And then I moved across into Boss Resources and ran all their technical studies for about four years or so, uh, which resulted in the feasibility study being announced in January of last year. And I've effectively moved from that role in Boss Resources to initially take up a similar role with Lotus. So looking after the site, looking after all the care and maintenance activities, and then starting to build up all the technical studies and all the work that we need to do to try and you know, bring it back into production. So that's my personal experience. There are a number of other people within the team as well that have expertise. Grant Davies, one of the key guys, um, he was also part of the original due diligence, effectively negotiates the deal with Paladin Energy for the asset. Uh, he has a lot of operational experience in Africa, having come from Anglo Gold, ran many, many mines in Africa over the years. So he has a lot of operational experience. And then we've started to build up our own team on site as well. So we have a lot of the original Paladin Energy guys who have stayed with us on site, but we've brought in a few new people as well that we've worked with in South Africa or worked with in Tanzania before and brought them into the fold as well. We have someone we know there that we trust there that's running it on our behalf while we can't travel across it. And you're a new MD. That's right, yes. Two and a half weeks in the role. So... As I said, I have been involved with the project before, but stepping up to the MD role only two and a half weeks ago. So really trying to you know, find my feet a little bit with all the new responsibilities as well. So trying to get the story out there as well, hence the conversation with people like yourself. What happened to the former MD? <laughs> it was, uh, there was a couple of, uh, I suppose, things that happened there. I think COVID was a big thing. Uh, the previous MD, Edward Smirnoff, was based over in Toronto. So when we brought him on board in uh, early last year, the expectation, of course, that he would be able to come across to Perth, meet the team, you know, work with us quite closely, visit sites and all these types of things. With COVID coming in, we've never actually met him face to face. We've only ever had Zoom meetings with him and all this kind of stuff. And it started to get quite difficult as time progressed. And I think there was also, when we started the whole project last year or when we acquired the project, we were always very, very confident that the uranium price was going to pop. The question was always when it's going to pop. And I think some of the information that we're getting over the last couple of months, there's it could actually be this year. So we're really pushing hard on the development side. And from a development perspective, that's probably my skill set. That's what I've done before. And it's probably a little bit easier for me to run with that type of work going forward rather than a more corporate type of activity going on for a longer period of time. Okay, and, and talking of sort of musical chairs, Michael Bowen stepped in as non-executive chairman. So again, Correct, yeah. is this is this sort of teething problems or just is it COVID? Is it why are you just trying to work out the lay of the land? Well, I think it's trying to get everyone in Perth because again, our previous chairman was over in uh, Canada as well, so, but he wasn't in Toronto. He was in Vancouver. So even the MD and the chairman weren't in the same city and all this kind of stuff. And again, everything was being done by Zoom on different time zones and all that. So the idea, if we want to try and make some decisions quickly, we want to try and push things. Let's try and centralize the team in Perth make sure we're all together making decisions, can contribute effectively to uh, the decision-making process and concepts and ideas and all that. And that's where we've really situated ourselves as well. So everyone's Perth-based at the moment on the board, 
and uh, yeah, much easier to have our board meetings and all that kind of stuff. It is. It is. In fact, something that investors should look at. I think you know sometimes you do see management teams spread around the, across the world and saying it'll be fine. We'll, we'll manage, but it's not quite the same as sitting in the same place, same room, and having a conversation about quite complex topics. So, uh, exactly. Especially if meetings go on for a couple of hours, Zoom does get a bit uh, frustrating after the first two hours. It does. It does. Um, so, so let's talk about what you've got. I know you've raised some money. We're going to talk about that in a second. But um, obviously, you picked up this Paladin asset. It was in care and maintenance. Uh, they've got their balance sheet is a little bit stretched at the moment in places, uh, and they've got they've got their own things to take care of. So, was that an easy conversation in terms of stepping up and saying, "Could we have this asset, please?" Yes, it was a relatively simple conversation. I think both Paladin and or, I mean the the idea that we had about it is if Paladin had two assets on care and maintenance, and they wanted to start them both up, it would be very very difficult to start both of them up at the same time, and they'd have to make a decision. So Langer Heinrich is obviously the bigger operation and they would focus on that. Calacara wouldn't quite get the love that maybe it deserved from it. But Paladin has still got exposure to uh, to Calacara through their shareholding in Lotus. They're a 10% shareholder in Lotus as well. So they haven't given everything away. They can still get part of the benefits of being a um, being a substantial shareholder in Lotus Resources. But that's reducing, isn't it? I mean, that's a factor of the deal that she did last March. But I guess with the, current, the recent fundraise, they've been diluted down, right? They are getting diluted down, yes. At the moment, they haven't indicated that they would want to maintain the shares. They'd be quite happy at the moment to be diluted down. But I think the important thing when you talk about the dilution as well, and perhaps we'll get onto when we talk about the project, but this is a relatively low capital cost project to start back up again. So the total dilution that they're likely to see over a period of time is not that significant compared to a normal greenfield project, where it's hundreds of millions of dollars you need to raise on a junior company. And that would see excessive dilution maybe. Yeah, yeah, I totally appreciate um, that. And, I, and when we talk about the asset, for, for sure, I want to cover that often. But I just want, I'm interested in the, the mindset of the management team and you know what, what you thought you'd be walking into. Because obviously, I think the beginning of last year, people expected that last year was the year that Uran would finally get going, kind of like 2019 and 18. Um, exactly right. <laughs> right? So it, it, was, it was the right time to get after a good asset, and in this case, a previously producing asset with all the infrastructure that uh, comes along with that. But um, talk, talk to me about you know were you, the, the structure of the deal that you did then, because you know, new company, I, I get the old hands have got the, the, the bands got back together and, you know, um, you know, able to run complex projects, etc. But the financing then would have been still difficult, wouldn't it? So how did you structure that deal? So the structure was partly equity and partly cash, and there's a smelt, uh, there's a net smelter royalty associated with it as well. So there was a um, an equity payment up front of about $1.8 million equivalent in Lotus shares. There was, um, Paladin held a surety bond, which is linked to the environmental bond of 10 million US dollars. And part of the deal was the payback of that uh, uh, bond amount. So at the conclusion of the deal, we paid the initial $4 million um, there's another $1 million that we paid earlier this year, $2 million in March of next year, and then the final payment of $3 million in 2023. So that's the really is the core of it. There's also a net smelter royalty on it of 3%, but that is capped at a $5 million uh, total uh, royalty payment as well. So from our perspective, there wasn't a lot of cash up front. Um, we think we staged the payments really well, so we're not... Going not raising money just to pay off the paladin debt, we're actually raising money to do our care and maintenance, to do our technical studies, to do our feasibility studies. 
I mean, what did it show on their balance sheet? I'm really I'm fascinated because there's a ton of infrastructure there and there's a you know, ton of equipment. And of course, there's the asset itself. So were they, and they, I know they retained some equity in it initially, but would they have considered that a good deal or just a necessary deal? I think they would have seen it as a good deal in terms of taking something off their balance sheet. It was costing them something in the order of $5 million a year on their care and maintenance costs. They saw that as even if it took a couple of years to bring it back into operation, that we can take that $5 million off them for the care and maintenance. They saw that as a positive. And then, of course, being able to use those funds for the Langer Heinrich project. I think that was the main thing for them. It also took away some of the, um, I, I suppose, focus from Langer Heinrich. So they were able to focus purely on Langer Heinrich, which is what they obviously feared the primary project. Right. Okay. So let's talk about what you did buy. What did you get? So what we've bought, so there's the existing uh, asset, which consists of a processing plant. So the processing plant has a throughput of about 1.5 million tons per annum of ore, which equates at 1,000 ppm to about 3 million pounds of production. So that's what the plant is capable of producing. It's got all the associated infrastructure with it, including things like an acid plant, access road, tailings facilities, open cut mine, we have a camp on site and all these types of things that was all included it, included in it. Um, all of that is located on an existing mining license, which has got transferred across to us. And in addition to the mining license, we also got five exploration licenses as well. Three of them are which are contiguous to the existing mining license and two of them, which are about a hundred kilometers or so to the south that has some interesting anomalies on as well that form the basis of our future exploration programs going forward. Right, okay. So I want to, I want to talk about the the, the the deal still, if you, if you don't mind, because um, you've walked into a country, have you got experience of in, in working in Malawi, have any of the team? Yes, so I've done a previous project in Malawi down in the south, just outside of Lulongwe. So I was involved for a couple of years with the project down there. So I do have some Malawian experience. Yeah. Right. Okay. And um, is, I mean, just for people who don't know it, uh, good mining jurisdiction. It's a it's a learning mining mining jurisdiction, maybe the way to put it. Malawi doesn't have a very rich heritage in mining. Um, there are a number of projects out there at the moment that are in a sort of similar phase to us in terms of looking at restarting. There's a couple of out there: Makango, Sovereign, Globe, or the other sort of players in the space at the moment. Um, they've got a new mining act that just came into existence in 2019 that everyone's complying with based on UK law from what we can see. Um, the government is very, there's just what were elections last year and the opposition party has now come into power. The opposition party is probably a little more business focused than the previous party that was in power. So we see that as a positive moving forward. There is a definite realization by both the president and the mining minister who we've had an opportunity to speak to that mining is a definitely seen as a very important part of the Malawian growth strategy. Even when Kalakiri was operating back in 2009 to 2014, when you look through the data, the revenue generated by the mine accounted for about one and a half or maybe 2% of Malawi's GDP. It is a very, very significant revenue generator for the country. And that's why they're behind the project. I think they want to see it back up and running. They want to see the revenue coming into the government coffers again. But you're going to have to do that in a very responsible way, given the nature of the product we're talking about, right? So um, so did did the plant produce at, at the nameplate 
um, three million pounds ever. Yes, it did. And in fact, it exceeded that in one of the years, I think it was 3.2 or 3.3 million pounds per annum. Right. And so let's talk, let's talk about the sort of responsible component, the, I guess, a little bit of ESG, but also in terms of uh, your ability to get permits and licenses, um, you know, for um, producing again. So are there any environmental concerns from the government now that you've spoken to them and they've kind of got engaged, re-engaged? There's no environmental concerns at this stage. We have our environmental permits in place, which was required for the mining license that's also in place. So one of the things that we do have to do just from an environmental perspective during the care and maintenance phase, we've got to be very careful with our water management systems. So in Malawi, there's a lot of rainfall. And a big lake. Uh, <laughs> 1.3 to 1.5 meters per year of rainfall. And any of that rain that falls on the disturbed areas, either the pit or the waste stockpiles or even within the plant area itself, all of that water has got to be contained, it's got to be treated and all that before it's discharged. So that's our primary environmental requirement now while we're in care and maintenance. There's obviously some dust exposure associated with the waste rock dumps and all that kind of stuff, but we have some very good monitoring systems in place. And with all that rainfall, although it's detrimental from a requirement to handle it, it of course suppresses all the dust issues and all that kind of stuff. So we do get some benefits associated with it as well. So that's our main environmental um, uh, focus at the moment. We continue on that, our normal monitoring programs as required by the environmental system. So that's the one going as well. Right, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the, you know, because Lake Malawi, very big lake, quite dear to me. I, I, I used to have fish from there. Um, so it's, it's a kind of ecosystem, which is, you know, obviously, um, well known and the, the government are concerned about that. So in terms of the water monitoring component, um, is it just fairly standard regular stuff? There's not anything complicated here in terms of what you see in front of you? No, there's nothing complicated. We have, you know, drainage systems and all that kind of stuff. We have water collection dams all over the place. So we collect all the water. We pump the water then from these dams back into the plant and we've converted part of the plant into a water treatment process. So we add lime and all these types of things to precipitate the sulfates and any uranium that's there. We then monitor that solution. And once it gets to a certain spec, we're then allowed to discharge it into the river, which runs down to the Malawi and to, to Lake Malawi. But again, there's monitoring points the whole way down the river as well. So we monitor the river to make sure there's no issues there. And we're only allowed to discharge when the Seri River is flowing above a certain level. So we make sure that not only are we meeting the requirements in the plant, when it actually goes into the river, there's the additional benefit of the dilution associated. Right. You, you mentioned this, the low CAPEX, OPEX number to kind of get get thing, this thing up and running again, but it has been in care and maintenance for a few years. Um, there's always going to be a few problems. I know you've kind of fixed the problem with the, I think the plant was experiencing a few issues in terms of movement, uh, probably associated to water. So, that, But that's I understand that's been remedied, but what are more what are more of the other concerns in terms of getting this thing up and running again where's the money being allocated to so um so what we did is when we when we got hold of the project as i said we did our own due diligence and we did our own investigations had a look at um, different parts of the plant had the opportunity to talk to not only the operators but also some of the people who've been involved in the design and the construction and commissioning of the plant as well what paladin had done is they'd put out an internal restart scoping study back in 2016, which was what they thought were the requirements to be able to restart the plant. We went through that in detail, and we actually put out our own scoping study in October of last year, which was really based on that Paladin work. And we were quite comfortable with the $50 million that they had uh, put to one side for the capital cost. 
And when you look down at the breakdown of that $50 million, it's not all on direct plant refurbishment costs as such. A lot of it's associated with restocking reagents and all that. So it's a relatively remote site. So with a remote site like that, what you want to try and do is have at least three and maybe even as much as six months worth of reagents on site so that you don't have any issues, you know, with downtime associated with you know, delivery issues of reagents and all that. So a large portion of that capital is actually associated with that. There's also, there was also a big spend put to retraining staff, and we've kept that. We think that's a really good idea. We're going to have training centers, probably not on site, but maybe in the nearby town of Karanga, even down in Mzuzi, which is about 200 or 300 k's away from where we are now, and then have um, employment offices or such down in Lalongwe and Blantyre so people can come and put down the names for jobs and go through the initial interview process and even do maybe some of the basic training there prior to coming to site. So there's a big effort that's going to be put into that such that we can reduce the number of expats required on the plant because we know the expats are a lot more expensive than the local Malawians. So if we can try and reduce that number, it will help with the operating costs as well. Well, I think that, that's a great interesting point you raised there because when, when a company's you know, producing three, 3.2 million pounds, there's a lot of local employment and then it goes into care and maintenance you're offloading people, people working the plant, security guards, you know, you know, um, looking after the place. So th there's there's a lot of people who were employed and then next day aren't employed. And there's kind of a bit of rebuilding today. I'm always interested in how companies go about that process. We, oh, you know, we, we just went to ESG earlier, but in terms of how you feed into the local community, how, the, how you work together to kind of, whether it be rebuild those bridges, which are, you know, were removed and how you move forward with them to say, look, we're here to stay. We're here to build a business. We're here to employ you. We'll be using, you know, as best we can, we're putting money into the local community and economy. So, I mean, what are you doing on that front? I know it's early days, but, you know. Yeah, so one of the things, obviously, that, I mean, Paladin did the initial retrenchment process back in 2014 or 2015 or so. And there has been some more retrenchments that have occurred during the journey of the care and maintenance activities. One of the things we've been very open about is that anyone who was previously employed by Calacara, when the jobs come back again, they're going to be first in the queue. Those are the first people that we're going to approach, and they have the first opportunity or first refusal for a job that comes up. I mean, that makes sense for us because they do at least have some of the skills that are required and to retrain them will be much easier than training someone who's never worked on the plant before. So that's the first thing we've done. And I mean, we've also been very transparent about why things have, you know, have to be done. And people understand if you're open and transparent to them and explain to them, listen, the company wasn't making any money. It was losing money. There was no ways we could continue. If we can go through this period of having a break for a couple of years and probably been a bit longer than maybe some people thought, but if we can go this break period such that when we start back up again, we are profitable and able to employ people for longer periods of time, people understand that and accept that when you explain it to them in detail, going through all those times. <laughs> and then, I mean, one of the a couple of other things we've got. So Calacara is actually named after the Calacara village, which is just outside the gates of the, of, uh, the project. We've maintained our social responsibilities with that village and other surrounding villages we're uh, paying for school teachers. We support the clinic. We send our guys down again. They want us to have some electrical stuff done in the village. We sent our electrician down to do all those types of things. Um, as part of the new mining act, we have to put a community development agreement in place. We've spent the last six months talking to all the local communities, 
in terms of what they would like to see from the mine so we can understand. And they've already put a list of 30 or 40 projects that they would like us to have a look at over the period of time. So we already know what they want. We've already agreed that when we're back up and operating, part of the funds that we generate will be given back to the community and will be used for these projects. Okay, good man, good man. Should we talk about the asset? <laughs> talk about everything else. Um, yeah. Obviously, you're walking into previously producing assets, so you know a lot about it. You know certainly what's been mined from it. Um, have they taken all the good stuff? Is there much left? No, there's still some good stuff left. There's definitely some good stuff left. Um, if you have a look at the scoping study, what we had in the scoping study is we took the um, existing mining uh, or uh, mineral resource there, we put a new production scheduler um, against it, and we presented two different scenarios in our scoping study. In our first scenario, which we're calling the high-grade scenario, uh, we have an eight-year life of mine with an average speed grade of about 900 ppm over those eight years, but the first four years are 1,100 or 1,200 ppm. And that was the basis of scenario one, producing about 16 and a half million pounds over those eight years. But the one that really interests us is scenario two, which we outlined over there, which has got exactly the same first eight years. But at the back end of the schedule, what we do is we start to process some of the material, some of the lower grade material that's already stockpiled on surface or will be mined as we go for the higher grade material left in the pit. And what that does, it pushes our life of mine out to 14 years, and we produce about 24 million pounds over that period. Our average grade drops down, of course, because we're bringing in lower material, but that lower grade occurs at the back end of the schedule, which when you're doing your NPV calcs and all that kind of stuff, obviously has less of an impact. But the interesting thing for us is that's set up a base case for us. We know this technology is out there, and Paladin did some test work on it. We're about to embark on our own test work and we know other uranium companies have done test work around things like ore sorting, where you can actually upgrade the ore. Now, we're interested in doing that on the lower grade material at the back end of the schedule. We'll obviously lose some material, so we may not have a 14-year life of mine. But realistically, we could have an 11 or 12-year life of mine sitting at that average 900 ppm. And that's a really strong project to go for. And we haven't even started talking about our exploration potential. There's seven to 14 million pounds of exploration target out there as well that we can add on. Well, well that, 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 we should talk about that because and you, upgrading the feed that goes into the plant is, is great, fantastic. And obviously the economics changes the economics dramatically. But do you think you're going to be able to upgrade from the exploration? I mean, do you, do you know anything about the exploration targets that you're looking at at the moment? Is there any sort of indications from that? So what we've got is in our, within our exploration targets, there's a couple of different areas we're looking for. So when I mentioned that we'd got our exploration licenses, three of them are contiguous with the mining license. So they're adjacent to it. And we know that um, two of them, two of those uh, exploration licenses, have radiometric anomalies on them and have geologies that look very, very similar to the Calacara uh, deposit. So we'd be pretty confident that they are similar in nature to them. The initial, so in only one of them have they done any drilling, and the drilling there hit some uranium mineralization, but the grade was relatively low, around the 240 ppm or so. And when you think what we want to feed to our plant is somewhere between you know, 400 minimum, you know, 1,100, 1,200 is where we want to be. But considering the something there, is there a feeder pipe that's you know, fed that uranium to the lower grade halo that we're seeing, and can we do our exploration program and actually concentrate and find the higher grade material? That's the one, the one objective. 
But of course, if we prove that all sorting is successful, we could put an all sorting unit out at the open pit, upgrade the ore there, and only transport the concentrate effectively back to the plant. So this all sorting gives us quite a bit of flexibility if we can demonstrate that it works. Okay, so so given all of that, so we, we've we've sort of broadly laid out what it is that you've got and what you know. You've just raised twelve point five million. Is that Aussie? Australian. Australian dollars. Okay. So how do you allocate that? Because I know you're all sitting in, a lot of you are sitting in Perth and you're having to sort of work through studies and reports and so forth to actually optimize. I mean, let's face it, given that where the market is today, you've got a bit of time on your hands. I, I suspect, I think people are looking towards the end of this year before we may get some signs of whether it be you know term contracts happening or spot price moving or you know um, you know and I think it gives confidence to the equities market. What we are seeing is you know things like the URA significantly increasing the amount of money that it's, it's that, that's inflowing there. We're seeing generalist funds coming in. So I think in the background all the right noises. People like Goldman Sachs putting out recommendations for. You know, nuclear as a power source in in the US, and you know, so there's a lot of noise, but not a lot of action apart from a little flurry just after New Year's with the with the um, you know the equities, and you, you were a beneficiary of that, which is good news. Yes, we were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see the spot price going down, but uranium equities are going up. The craziest commodity ever. <laughs> we've, we've, we've been following it for two years and the data doesn't make sense. But obviously the, the macro thematic is, I think, well understood in terms of supply demand uh, gap. Um, and, you know, we've got to get some production back into, some producing companies back into production for sure. But there's also a bunch of development and former producers which are going to need to get into production to kind of feed the demand. So I think, I think everyone buys that. But... You've got a few months now, I suspect, to optimize things better than you probably have today. So what are the things that you're going to focus on and, and what are you going to use the money for, the 12.5 million? Yeah, so the way that we've, we, we're trying to set it up, so as I mentioned, we've done the scoping study in October last year. That scoping study really set a baseline for us in terms of how we think the minimum case for the project could look like. But as part of our own due diligence, our review of all the data and the scoping study, what we've done is we've identified three and potentially four areas where we think we can make some significant differences to the project. The one we've already spoke about is ore sourcing, and that has a benefit for not only upgrading the ore, but there's a second part to it as well that we believe we can use it to reject high acid-consuming gang minerals. So one of the constraints on the plant, when we talk about the 1.5 million tonnes per annum throughput, that's a volumetric constraint on the mill, but there's another constraint that sits behind that, and that's acid consumption. So we have our own acid plant on site that produces 235 tons per day of acid. We can only feed in as much ore into the plant as consumes 235 tons per day of acid. If we can reject some of the high acid consuming gang minerals without losing too much uranium, we could potentially push the tons up, get more pounds up, at a lower cost. So that's one of the things we're looking at, how we can best use all sorting for our type of um, um, mineralization. The second thing is that uh, power on site at the mobile, at the moment is via diesel gensets. So the plant is not connected to the national grid and all power during operations for that period were from diesel gensets. So we've opened up negotiations with a number of parties 
So first prize is probably connecting to the national grid. The ESCOM is the Malawian utility. We've opened consultation up with them. They have told us there is power available for us at Karonga, which is about 30 kilometers as the crow flies away from the mine site. So we're looking at the opportunity to connect onto the grid. That would reduce our power costs by about 75%. So a diesel genset runs at 28 to 32 US cents per kilowatt hour. We think we can get the power of the uh, utilities at less than 10 cents. So that's a massive savings for us. But at the same time, what we also want to do from the power perspective, solar is a big thing in Africa. There's a lots and lots of companies out there and there's lots and lots of funds in Europe that will actually fund solar power farms as well. So there's a real opportunity for us to have a look at solar, solar power combined with batteries as a part of the energy mix, I think. So there's that opportunity. And then the last one is something we've just started working on as well, is that we, as I mentioned, we have an acid plant on site. An acid plant is a big heat generator. We can retrofit a steam turbine onto the acid plant and recover power of that. And that would be about two megs, according to the uh, consultant so far. And two megawatts is about a quarter of our total power demand. So that's another cheap way of getting power into the system. The, a lot of work around that. We also believe there's some information around acid recovery or improving the basic optimization of the plant to recirculate more acid, uh, reduce the amount of volume going up to the tailings dams or other small things we want to do. There's some stuff around the resin circuit that we think we can improve on as well. So those would be incremental changes, but I think if you get enough of them, you're going to see a significant difference. And then really the last one is the original base case design requires a second tailings dam to be built in about year five or year six of the operation. We believe there may be an opportunity if we can improve the density in the thickener coming up, we may not need to build that second tailings dam. So those are the things we're working on now. So these are targeted studies, you might call them, with the idea that we'll have all of those done by the middle of the year. And then we'll then take the results from those targeted studies, plus the updated production schedules and put a feasibility study together. Feasibility study for this size project would take us about nine months, we think. So sometime, you know, end of quarter one next year or beginning of quarter two next year, we should have a feasibility study in place as well. And as we're working through the feasibility study, financing, going out to the different utilities to try and get some contracts in place would also be part of the focus, such that if we were in a position by halfway through next year, the financing contracts, feasibility and everything ready, we could push the button to be able to restock the asset up again. Well, thanks for that. I was going to ask you what you thought your timing was for all of this. Um, because they get, if people are trying to position themselves in front of the utilities as being genuine contenders for getting into production, there's a lot who won't, who just, you know, either too early or just not, they haven't got the asset there. And the utilities will do their own um, diligence and discount the numbers provided to them by most CEOs, no doubt. Um, so you're, you're, you're quite clear about when, where you fit in the market, how you fit in the market and, and, and timing. Um, that's pretty impressive, you know, given you've been around for just over a year, right? Yeah, no, I think we've got a very, very clear picture. And I think there are some opportunities for us to accelerate that program if required. Uh, obviously, the one, the one I've just explained is we put a little bit of buffers in there in terms of how we want to manage things as a realistic program to move forward. But if the uranium price did pop, there may be an opportunity to shave a couple of months off that as well and get into production a little bit earlier. Well, I think it's all going to be market dependent. 
What's your, what's your thoughts on timing? Exactly. What's your thoughts on timing? There you ask, answer that yeah, question. I think probably late this year or early next year, I think might be how much we might start to see some stuff. I think, I mean, as you said, the fundamentals behind the supply and demand and all that kind of stuff, there doesn't seem to be a definite link at the moment to the spot price, but I think it's got to catch up. So just can't say um, the disparity between them at the moment is just too large. Got to catch up. It was, it was funny. I was listening to John Borshoff a couple of weeks ago, and he was on the show, and um, he was saying the utilities need a big, sharp shock. They need to treat this seriously, and they're not at the moment. Maybe because they know something, the rest of you don't. The rest of we, yeah. Don't. Well, that's. I mean, I suppose that's the one thing that's going on in the back of our mind as a, I suppose, developer or potential future producer for us to try and understand why this disconnect is very, very difficult. Maybe from their perspective, maybe there is something else that we're not uh, we're not aware. Of. Maybe there are some large inventories sitting around that are not obvious to us that they're relying on for a short period of time. That's difficult to say. Difficult to say. Obviously, a lot going on there. Um, stay in touch. Let us know how you get on with stuff, okay? And um, it's just one last question. So you're good for money for what? The next 12 months? Uh, probably up until the end of next year, we think, early, early 2023. Because not only have we got the $12.5 million, but we had $6.6 million in the bank at the end of December. We also have a lot of options that are in the money and we're expecting those people to start exercising the options as well. Okay, fantastic. Keith, appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll speak again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.